Hello and welcome to a bonus episode of Anthology, presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. If this is your first time listening, Anthology is a podcast exploring science fiction anthology storytelling during television's first golden age, beginning with The Twilight Zone. But in honor of Black Mirror's new season that premiered on Netflix on October 21st, I'm actually covering each episode of Charlie Brooker's technophobic sci-fi anthology series in this bonus episode series. You can find more of Anthology at anthologypod.com. And if you want to contact me, you can use the Facebook page at facebook.com slash anthologypod. You can tweet me at obsessiveviewer, or you can send an email to matt at obsessiveviewer.com, or call and leave me a voicemail at 317-762-6099. If you like what you hear and you want to support the podcast, you can do that by heading over to iTunes and leaving a rating and review. The more ratings and reviews I get, the easier it will be for, for people to find the show in iTunes' search results. And finally, if you want to show your support with your wallet, you can do that by clicking the donate button on anthologypod.com or the donate link in the show notes of this episode. Any donations made will help pay the fees to keep the podcast running and are greatly appreciated. Today on the show, I'll be discussing White Christmas, uh, Black Mirror's Christmas special episode that aired on December 16th, 2014 on Channel 4 in the UK. Okay, so before I get to my review, usually I read a plot summary, uh, courtesy of Wikipedia. And since this episode is so massive with so many, um, so many alternating storylines, I'm not going to read the whole description that's on Wikipedia because it is a freaking novel. Um, I actually, <laughs> I actually read about half of it. I recorded me reading half of it and it's like, it's way too long for me to go through and subject you guys to. So, um, in lieu of that, I'm just going to go through each section real quickly to give a brief overview of it just off the top of my head. So, uh, here's the abbreviated plot summary for white Christmas. Um, yeah. So, Joe Potter and Matt Trent work at a small remote outpost in the middle of a snowy wilderness. Joe wakes up on Christmas Day and finds Matt preparing Christmas dinner with I Wish It Could Be Christmas Every Day playing on the radio. Matt tries to get Joe to talk about why he accepted the job at the outpost, a topic they have never discussed in the five years they've been working together. Joe is reluctant to say anything and instead asks why Matt took the job. Happy for the conversation, Matt begins his own story. So part one of the story is that Matt was a uh, dating coach who taught seduction techniques to single men who struggled to attract women uh, using this augmented reality device um, implanted in their eyes called the ZI. He was helping one, uh, one man in particular named Harry, uh, who he convinced to crash a, an office Christmas party. Who, at which time he met, uh, he decided to try to bond with Jennifer, a quiet, attractive outsider who does not join in group conversations. Uh, with Matt's help, Harry manages to start a conversation with Jennifer, who admits she used to take drugs to fit in at parties, but not anymore, and that she is thinking of leaving the company after Christmas. Uh, Harry encourages her to be bold and go for it, to which she responds warmly. Uh, when she leaves to get a drink, Harry voices his doubts to the to Matt via the ZI, as well as a group of spectators who are watching and, and giving suggestions in a kind of a group chat f fashion. Uh, he argues with Matt out loud, and when Jennifer sees Harry smile, seemingly arguing with himself, she asks him back to her home. Uh, thinking he is about to have sex, Harry agrees to go with her. However, when he gets there, she feeds him a 
poisoned drink. And uh, th- at that point, Harry and all the men watching gradually deduce that Jennifer has schizophrenia and has gone off her medication and has just poisoned him. She mistakenly believes that Harry suffers from the same problem and decides they will escape the voices together through suicide. And uh, after that, uh, Matt and Matt instructs the group to destroy all evidence of it. And uh, when Matt's wife learns what he has been doing, she becomes angry and fights with him, then blocking him through the ZI, meaning that they can no longer see or hear each other. And that the audio is muffled and unintelligible and where the person stands, there is only white static in the person's shape. Part two involves Greta, a wealthy and demanding woman who basically allows her consciousness to be duplicated and put into what's called a cookie so that this artificial intelligence of, of a digital copy of her consciousness could basically do anything that she wants and operate her smart house so that everything is perfect for her um, and that she will never face the dilemma of having something not quite to her liking. Matt's job with the company, with the cookie and everything was to break down the willpower of the digital copies through torture so that they will submit to a life of servitude to their real counterparts. He accelerates the copy's perception of time so three weeks pass in a matter of seconds, and she is traumatized by her solitude in the room with nothing to do. Despite this, the copy still refuses to work, so Matt repeats the process and increases the time to six months. This drives her mad with emptiness, so when Matt reappears to her, she immediately submits to her new role. Part 3 Joe once had a long-term relationship with Beth, and while they were mostly happy, their main problem was Joe's tendency to act foolishly when drunk. One evening, while having dinner with their friends, Tim and Gita, and Gita, Joe notices Beth is withdrawn and seems to be in a bad mood. Later, he finds a pregnancy test, a positive pregnancy test, and is overjoyed about becoming a father. Beth reveals she does not want the baby and is getting an abortion. Joe is heartbroken, and remembering that she drank throughout dinner, he calls her selfish and guilty of trying to kill their child. Too upset to talk, Beth blocks him with her ZI. Uh, she leaves him the next morning without removing the block, preventing Joe from apologizing. He tries following her following her to work and meets Tim, who explains that she has left her job. A few months later, Joe spots Beth's silhouette and sees she is heavily pregnant, having not gone through with the, abor- with the abortion. He confronts her and begs her for a chance to talk, but Beth instead has him arrested, and Joe's giving a restraining order and is legally blocked from seeing her or the child, or any photos they appear in. He writes many letters of apologies to, of apology to Beth, but she never replies. Determining, determined to see his child, Joe waits for Beth at her father's cottage, where she spends every Christmas. Hiding in the woods outside, he sees Beth with the baby, but because the block extends to a person's offspring, it appears as a static-filled silhouette as well. For the next four years, Joe goes to Beth's father's cottage every Christmas to watch his child from the woods and leave anonymous presents on the doorstep, and despite the block, he eventually discerns the child is a girl. One day, while watching the news, Joe learns that Beth has died in a train crash. This causes the legal block to expire so Joe can finally see his daughter. However, the child has East Asian features, and Joe realizes Beth was cheating on him with Tim, which is why she wanted an abortion and refused to let Joe be part of her daughter's life. Devastated, Joe follows the girl into the, college, into the cottage and confronts Beth's father, who admits he destroyed the letters Joe wrote before Beth could read them. Losing his dem- temper, Joe hits Beth's father in the head with the snow globe that he was going to give to the, to the 
daughter, unintentionally killing him. He then flees the cottage and leaves, uh, lives on the streets for a few months until he is eventually apprehended by police. Conclusion. Matt asks what happened to Beth's daughter, and although Joe initially claims he does not know, he remembers a police officer telling him he found her grandfather dead in the kitchen and went outside into the heavy snow to help him, but froze to death next to a tree in the garden. Joe breaks down, admitting he was responsible for the deaths of two innocent people. Matt seems relieved that he has succeeded in getting a confession out of Joe, who cannot remember coming to the outpost or what he and Matt do there. Joe suddenly realizes the outpost's interior is a replica of Beth's father's kitchen, and Matt disappears. Joe is actually a digital copy similar to Greta's, as the real Joe refuses refused to confess to his role in the, in the deaths, so the police brought in Matt to draw a confession from his copy. The outpost was a, was a five-year-long simulated environment within a cookie that lasted only 70 minutes. As the real Joe is charged with the deaths, Matt asks the police if he will be freed, having been arrested himself for his illegal seduction coaching, involvement in Harry's death, and concealment of his role. Officer Holder reveals that he will be released, but he has been registered as a sex offender, which means he will be blocked by everyone. Matt leaves the police station and walks out into a Christmas market, seeing everyone as white static silhouettes while they see him as a red silhouette. He will be unable to interact with anyone for the rest of his life. Meanwhile, Joe's digital copy is left on, and an officer increases the cookie's rate of time perception to 1,000 years per minute and sets I Wish It Could Be Christmas Every Day, which was playing on the radio when Joe killed Beth's father on a continuous loop. Okay, and that is my <laughs> abbreviated plot summary of White Christmas. Um, I know that took a while too, but trust me, it's like three times longer, uh, in the, in the, uh, Wikipedia entry. So, um, I'm going to go ahead and do a talent rundown for you guys. Um, this episode stars John Hamm as Matt, um, who of course John Hamm is most no known for, uh, his role as Don Draper in Mad Men. And I mean, he is, he's just great. He's, he's an awesome actor. Um, he, I really like him in comedies. Um, I'm thinking like Wet Hot American Summer, First Day of Camp, and Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. Um, he's just he's just such a good actor, um, and I really uh, am excited to see more of him. But uh, he's in this episode, and then Rafe Spall plays Joe, who I really liked him in the movie I Give It a Year, which is a funny, subversive rom-com. Um, I liked it a lot. There's one scene in particular that's real like he like he plays this awkward awkward guy who has a very awkward encounter with his um uh girlfriend's uh parents that's that's hilarious he does a really great job um he also appeared in prometheus in the short-lived showtime cameron crow series roadies which was recently canceled after one season Writer for this episode was Charlie Brooker, and director was Carl Tibbetts, who uh, I mentioned a couple episodes ago was the director for White Bear. And my initial ep my initial thoughts on this episode when I saw it about two years ago was that um, I remember feeling like it was a bit convoluted, um, but the idea of blocking people in real life the way that they do with the ZI in this episode uh, was really intriguing to me. And, um, yeah, I didn't really remember much of, much of the stories that were in this episode. So I was really looking forward to checking this out for this uh, podcast.
So the first thing that people will notice in this episode is that the opening is slightly changed from the normal Black Mirror openings. Um, once the Black Mirror uh, logo is, is displayed, or title card, I should say, um, it changes into an icy, an ice, a broken ice visual visual component to it. And, uh, and then there's kind of a Christmassy music playing to it. So it's kind of cool. So from the outset, I, I really like Rafe Spall and I really like John Hamm and I like seeing them together in this episode. Um, and it's funny because after seeing so many episodes of black mirror, um, well six to be exact, um, seeing John Hamm in a black mirror episode is a little bit jarring. And it's funny, that's my experience now, having not seen the new Netflix episodes. So I'm sure that's going to be, uh, it's just, it's interesting because this is a British show and seeing John Hamm in it is just, it's kind of jarring at this point. But um, I know going forward, that's not going to be the case. But I really, it, it's an interesting dichotomy that they have between these two actors because Rafe Spall is no disrespect to the man, but he's kind of an average guy. He's kind of like an, like a, like an everyday, everyday, like, like an everyman kind of guy. Like he, he, his look is a very average guy look and juxtaposing that with John Hamm, who is like incredibly a handsome leading man actor kind of guy. It's just an interesting dichotomy that really enhances their chemistry because from the outset, you see that they're, not really at odds, but they're, they're just diametrically opposite. And seeing that, um, Rafe Spall's character is a little more reserved and, and quiet and John Hamm is much more outgoing and is, is getting him to talk about his experience. It's just, it's an interesting, it's an interesting, uh, piece of chemistry between the two characters. And there's a line early on where, uh, I think Rafe Spall says, um, it's a job, not a jail, referring to where they're the uh, wintry outpost they're in. And I just thought that that was, that was a funny little, uh, uh, little subtle thing. I mean, in retrospect, it's kind of on the nose now <laughs> because it's kind of, you know, right out there for you, but I still appreciate it nonetheless. So when we get to the first segment of the episode, which that's something that I really loved about this episode is that it's, it's a Christmas special. It's, it's a special episode. It's inflated. It's an hour and 13 minutes and it plays out like an anthology, an anthology film with several, with a few different, um, standalone stories that all kind of come together and wrap up together and into one thing. It's very clever storytelling. And I think that it's, kind of remarkable how much they like from the scripting and uh, when it comes to scripting, this is a remarkable episode because everything flows together really well. It feels very natural. Everything is very organic, but the stories themselves are so different from each other. They're, they're very, they're standalone enough that they could be, you know, their own standalone stories, but they all exist in the same episode. That's all taking place not concurrently, but they're, they're taking place in the same universe and they're, they're coming together in such a really, really magnificent way. Um, by my count and from, from the start, the first story that is told John Hamm and the, uh, uh, the life coach thing, the dating coach pickup artist thing, like, man, that 
whole that whole um sequence is really incredible i i mean i loved it it's first of all it's it's a really interesting concept it's kind of a cool concept that this guy is not a social guy so he enlists the help of um someone to help him pick up women and it's it's a funny concept it's cool it's it's i like it i could see i could see it being a very lucrative business (laughs) um and i like that the actor playing harry is I mean, he just plays it very natural. He's very, he's very much this reserved, shy, awkward person who is not good with women. So he's obviously reliant on John Hamm's work, uh, or his ear, or his voice, I should say. And it's just, it's really interesting. I, I mean, I, I really like it. Um, you get really get wrapped into the the story of it, and this kind of my takeaway from everything of of this is that each of these stories could have been their own, their own separate black mirror episode. And this one in particular with the, with the ZI or the Z link, I link thing is absolutely brilliant and just terrifying. It's, it's so creepy to me. It, it plays out like a horror movie for me. And, it's so amazing to watch it now after having not seen it for a couple of years because I'd completely forgotten about the suicide thing. Um, or about a year and a half ago, I should say. Um, I've completely forgot about the suicide thing and the scene where, um, Harry is talking to the woman and they're talking about leaving their job or leaving the job, but she's actually talking about committing suicide it's so it's so subtle and it's so like it is so genuine and organic the way that it's it's such a miss um it makes so much sense that it's that it's a miscommunication and it's it's almost uh comedic but it turns out to be absolutely terrifying and it's just it it makes it into uh, uh into horror and i didn't remember how it played out um so when she goes, when she invites him back and he is sitting on the bed and she gives him the drink there, the score kind of kicks in like this very ominous, like horror movie kind of score. It's very foreboding. And that is just so great. And when I say that this is like a horror movie, it, it, embraces that so well because it doesn't just end there. It doesn't end with him just gurgling and and dying and then her killing herself and then everything like it takes it. It takes it so, so much further because she takes a funnel out and forces him to drink the rest of the drink. And that's something that she didn't need to do that, that episode, this story didn't need that, but it really hammers home how horrific it is and it's haunting and it's just crazy. And I loved it for that. Um, and it really, it really made uh, the stakes of what um, Matt John Hamm's character has. It really hammered that home, and I like that there is an element to it where he, um, his wife, leaves him for that, and and that's a very organic way to show, to introduce the blocking concept that comes into play later, and that all goes back to just how 
really remarkable the script is with with dovetailing all of these somewhat disparate elements together into a cohesive story that all leads toward the end it's just it it's so it's so impressive i i loved it i i really loved it and so after we are introduced to that we're brought back to to the to the shed um or the outpost but first i do want to mention that i did like the little easter egg of um one of the people that were watching as matt uh, was helping was helping Harry through the I link or the Z link. Um, I like that the the username was I am Waldo. That's a nice little Easter egg there. But I really like how this episode is structured. Like the frame story of if you're looking at it as an anthology movie, um, the frame story is this conversation between John Hamm and Rafe Spall, and. It's just, it's just really, I like the way it's structured. I really like that. And then when we get back to, when we get back to the outpost story, the frame story of them talking after we're introduced to that, like that's its own self-contained story. And then at that point, that's when we start focusing on Rafe, uh, Rafe Spall's character being closed off and paranoid. Um, earlier he had looked at the clock and, um, mentioned that he hadn't noticed it before. And it's a very, it's a very distinctive clock. It has like birds or something in, in place of the numbers. And that planted a seed of paranoia for us as audience members. And after we're introduced to this story with, with the, this first segment, we're now seeing that things may not be what they seem there, but it's still subtle enough. So we hear like uh Rafe Spall's character hears something, but he, but he, it's a phantom, it's a phantom sound that's it's creepy it's it's unsettling so then we get to the next story where it's it's matt explaining what he did for a living and it's really it's really impressive how they can make that really compelling because it's sandwiched in between these two stories like the first story with with matt talking about the the pickup artist thing and the the dating coach thing like that's a compelling thing because it shows like his origin that shows how he got to where he was. And then the last story of, of how Rafe Spall's character got there and, and, you know, murdered his girlfriend's father and to have just a story of, Oh, this is what John Hamm does for a living in this series. in the show is just really on the surface. It's really interesting how it's just, just straightforward or it's, it's kind of, it wouldn't on the surface be compelling, but it is focusing on this technology and it's, it plays with some really, really interesting concepts of um, artificial intelligence and, and consciousness. And it's really, it's really fascinating. Like again, this whole, this whole segment could have been its own black mirror episode. It's really fascinating to me. And much like a black mirror episode, it starts out in a confusing manner of this woman that's in a completely white room um, great set design, by the way, because it's just is almost aggressively white. It's a good like visual reference to her consciousness in the in the cookie, like that whole area around her. Her life is just a white space. It's really jarring to see her get put under uh, put, put under the anesthetic and then them extracting extracting her digital consciousness out, and it's just we see it or we experience it through the uh 
through the perspective of the digital copy. So we're seeing it as like, she is not like, she's not, she doesn't exist solely in the brain. She's just like, it's like, it's, it's like her consciousness is being split into two. And that's just really dark and interesting. And, and it's just, it's, it's creepy. It's, it's really creepy. Um, and it makes you think that before we know exactly what it is, that that's like, we don't know that that's the intention of what, what the deal is with it. It makes you think that something has gone horribly wrong with this, um, with this operation, whatever operation she has and having that be the case or having that, or having it be, having it actually be like a normal, like this is a successful extraction of the digital copy just makes it more, just more eerie and unsettling. So once she is in the cookie and once John Hamm is explaining to her her life now, it's just so, again, it's very dark and, and interesting. And the, implement, uh, the implementation of the time adjustment is fascinating to me. Um, and the fact, that, the fact that John Hamm's character tells the digital copy that it, he says it'll be much easier if you just comply. It's like... It's so twisted and inhumane and to be able to put her into just a um into a purgatory of time through the time adjustment feature is just so twisted and, and inhumane. Again, it's twisted and inhumane. It's it's just horrible. It's really amazing. And the fact that they're breaking down like it's it's not like they're programming this AI to work for the actual person. They're breaking down the AI so that they, they're breaking it down so much so that they will comply because they crave something to do because their entire existence is just this empty space of nothing and they have no contact with anything. So at first he does, I think uh, three weeks and then he does six months and it's like, it's just, it's so terrible to think about. Like this is a, this is like an AI essentially, but it's something that's extracted from the consciousness of a human being. So their experience, that experience of that digital copy is that they are a complete person. They are a complete individual. They think that they are the person. So to have them in this vacuum alone for three weeks at a time, six months at a time, it's just, it's mind boggling and it's, it's terrifying because they can't, they don't eat, sleep or anything. They just exist. And that's like, that is just such a twisted vision for this. And I love how it comes into play at the end of the episode. And it's just, it's, it's remarkable. And the actress playing Greta plays it really well. Uh, once he comes back after the six months, like she is so unhinged and, and, and just craving something to do that. It's, it's really a, a good performance there. And I will say that as much as, as terrifying as it is and everything, you have to admit having a house that automatically knows what you like and takes care of you the way that that digital copy does in the cookie. I mean, that technology would just be incredible. Like, oh man, that would be amazing. But um, yeah. And then the nice little like uh, <laughs> the nice little button to that segment is that John Hamm uses the the pickup line that Harry used earlier in the first segment um, at the Christmas party 
on Greta. And I just, I love that. I love that, how that comes back into play. That's, I, I love the writing of this episode. It's, it's really, it's really remarkable. So after that segment, we go back to the frame story of, of John Hamm and Rafe Spall in the, in the outpost. I like that, that, like there's a scene where where Matt where John Hamm's character looks at Rafe and says Rafe Spall and says you're kind and it's like he's he has a genuine like feeling cuz this is when Rafe Spall's character gets like he's he's uh expressing how disgusting it is that that they do this with with the cookies and everything it seems like John Hamm is genuinely just impressed or surprised that that this character is that this guy is an empathetic character and he's, he says he's kind. Um, but he just, he says that he isn't. And that's the perfect, that's really great that he, uh, that's a great opening to, to in, introduce his story that he's, that he's, uh, going to tell. And I mean, and really that's kind of the point of the entire episode. This, this story is just a big, ball of culmination for it um it it brings everything together and i'm uh i really enjoyed it so you see the relationship with with rafe swall's character and uh the uh beth i think is her name and right off the bat again there's, there's another nice little easter egg that she's singing the song that was from 15 million merits and then then a few scenes later we see uh Rafe Spall's character finding the pregnancy test and the pregnancy test is the same test from Be Right Back. And so I love all the easter eggs and this this episode feels like at that point I felt like that this episode feels like a culmination of everything that the show has been being uh, has been leading up to. Not that they're all connected but just that this seems like a big a big like celebration of <laughs> the two seasons of black mirror um, or the six episodes that came before it. It seems like they're just cramming in so many things and they're putting it all together in this kind of cohesive thing without, without making it too, too convoluted or anything. It's just like, yeah, that's the same pregnancy test. The, um, the Z link stuff seems very similar to the uh, technology and, and uh, the entire history of you. There's that same song from 15 million merits. It's just, it's a nice little Easter egg that really makes you think about like the implications of it and, and what it, what it all means for the greater, like quote unquote, um, black mirror universe. And it made me really hope that there's a Christmas special next year, um, after we get the rest of the episodes that Netflix ordered, however, and I don't, I haven't, I haven't read anything about the new season. I haven't seen any, um, all I know, the only thing I know about the new season of black mirror that premiered on October 21st is that it's six episodes. I know the titles of the episodes. I know some of the actors in the episodes and I know one of the directors, um, that directed one of them. That's pretty much all I know. And then the, only other thing I know is that the last episode is an hour and a half long. So I'm kind of hoping that, um, that that's going to be kind of like a Christmas special kind of thing like, like this, uh, was, but we'll see. Um, or I mean, <laughs> depending on when you guys listen to this, you probably have already seen, but anyway, when, when we go back to the scene after the dinner party that they have that Rafe Swall's character and, and his girlfriend have, um, there's a scene where he talks to her about the pregnancy test. And this is another, another time where Rafe Spall's kind of genuine average guy-ness really comes into play because he, uh, 
he tells her that he's excited for her. She's, he's excited to be a dad and he, he wants the baby and everything. And then she tells him that she doesn't want the baby and that she is going to get an abortion. And that's, uh, and then that's when he realizes that she was drinking all night and then he thinks that he's killing their baby. Um, which that, that scene alone is such a crazy, messy situation to be in. And it is just, it's really amazing to me. And I kind I actually kind of wish that the, that the show did more with it or, or like really, really got deeper with it because like that as, as a dramatic uh, piece or dramatic piece of dramatic tension is really compelling because you have this couple who presumably at this point in the story are pregnant with, with their own child and one doesn't want the, what doesn't want the baby. It, it like, there are so many implications to it. There are so many different, um, social commentaries to be made out of this. And, and it's just, it's really, it's really compelling to me. Not that they, not that they fumbled it at all. Not that it was anything that was dissatisfying to me. I just, I just think that it's a really compelling, um, situation to put characters in. And I would have loved to see that sequence expanded into its own big story, but the story must go on. So <laughs> Rafe Spall's character is blocked by his girlfriend. And at this point, like it's, it's interesting because I mean, we've seen, we've seen a character get blocked, but at this point we see the perspective of someone who's been blocked. So we see that both parties see each other as, as blocked. And I really like, how it's how it's kind of developed more because we see that not only are they blocked in person but every photograph every every image of the person that blocked them is blocked from that person entirely and there's a really really great line where uh Rafe Spall's character says when you're blocked you can't even wallow property uh, properly and that is so rough i mean that's so sad and it's just it's amazing it's it's really remarkable how it's how it's done. I mean, it's, it's really, that's kind of a really poignant part of it because he cares about this woman, obviously. And it's just, it's like, he has suffered a really major life changing loss by having her block him and knowing that she is pregnant with what he assumes is his, with is his child. It's just, that is such a, such a such a dramatic moment for him that's such a such a dramatic turn to his life and um i really like that they included that line where he says you can't even wallow properly and then later when he sees her blocked i <laughs> like like in my notes i have goddamn i love how thought out this world is <laughs> because that is so that is so amazing that they that you have this, like when you're blocked, it's, it's really interesting to see that, that when you're blocked, like visual, visually people become this staticky silhouette and using that to show that she is pregnant and to use that to reveal to us and to Rafe Spall's character that she's pregnant by just seeing the silhouette just with a pregnant belly is just remarkable. I, I love it. I, I love it so much. And like, I just think that that's a really great twist in the story for us. And that's a great way to visually represent it to us as the audience. 
And then to take it a step farther, when he goes to confront her, she, he, he pleads with her to, um, to, to understand, uh, unblock him and, and talk to him. It's really amazing because it, I mean, it is creepy. It is so creepy when he, when we see from her perspective that there's just this, you know, staticky silhouette that's gar- speaking in garbled words to her. It's just, it's really, it's really kind of creepy and unsettling. And then again, what, what Black Mirror does so well is it keeps, it keeps, uh, developing this world as it goes along. So we get the, we've got introduced to, um, the concept of legal blocks and, and restraining orders in the society. So legal blocks, uh, I think it said that there's a, there's a GPS thing set up with it. So, so that there's a restraining order as well as blocks and that the blocks cover offspring as well. And it's just, it's really, it's just heartbreaking really because from his perspective, he is blocked from a woman that that he loved, and he, from his perspective, has a child that he can never see. Like he literally can never see her, and that's that is just so that is just so twisted. Um, it's it's so twisted, and adding the element of it where every year on Christmas Eve he goes to see them from afar. That's that's a really sad and and kind of pathetic life, but it's it's sad in that he doesn't have the closure. He doesn't have closure. He can't communicate with her at all. He can't even see his child or see the child. And it's really sad because he can't, as he said earlier, he can't wallow properly. He can't, he can't develop this closure for it because everything was cut off instantly. So he doesn't have, like he can't repair those feelings. He can't um, really process everything yet. So, because of that, he he has this ritual where he goes and spies on them on Christmas Eve, and it's it's so sad. And um, Rafe Spall plays it really well. Like I, he's such he's he's a fantastic actor. I really like him. Um, and then we get the introduction of the idea of death releasing the block, and to see him just just see that she died in a train wreck years later, uh, just on the news is just really uh really sad i mean it, it kind of kind of comes out of nowhere for for him for the character and it's it's just um it's really sad it's it's a ni- it's a nice like sad poignant moment and then he says that he the kind of silver lining is he'll finally be able to see his daughter and the the horror of seeing her as being an asian Asian child in real in him realizing that that his girlfriend had cheated on him and like that moment is so heartbreaking and it's so like the the way that the story unfolds for us the way that we're told all of this and the way that everything happens it makes his reaction to go in there and 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 uh confront his ex-girlfriend's father um it makes it really intense and really like you feel the emotion of it. And I really, I really love it. And once, once he, uh, is in the room, like there's notice paid to the clock. And then we kind of, as the audience, we recognize the room that he's in. And it's just, it's (laughs) at that point, it's like, it's really like what it's, it's like such a, 
such a like what is going on moment and it's i i love the way that it's that it's plays out at from here on out um when he it, and then like the intensity just is amps up and it kind of reaches its crescendo when he hits hits the woman's father in the head and it's it's played up as it's a reaction it's it's almost on reflex that he does it and it's on impulse that he does it and then it's just it's terrifying it's it's really well done and then we get this and and then kind of we get to the end of the episode where everything is kind of coming together and we realize that not only did he murder the father but she but he left her alone there like she was there by herself and the girl ended up dying at that moment when he admits to it to John Hamm in in the outpost and he he admits to it like there's such a such a great moment where Rafe Spall's character just shows just remorse and he's just broken up by it. And it's, it's like his, he's shattered by it and it's played so well. Like he is, I, I have just the highest of praise for him. He is a really terrific actor and it's, it's just the mental anguish of all of that is just remarkable. And then to kind of, to put such a button on it by having it be revealed that John Hamm was like that they're in a cookie and John Hamm is in there. Like he's, he just did it to make a deal. And then not only did he, like he did it to, to make a deal so that he was cleared and everything from his, from his stuff, from the first segment, from the, uh, the death of the, the hairy guy, um, to see, to see that, play out to where he's he did what they wanted and he got and he wanted to get what he expected but the cruel twist of it all is that he is put on to the futuristic equivalent of the sex offender registry which means that he's blocked by everyone and that that concept is really the thing that's um that really uh stayed with me since i first saw the episode just the idea that he is that he can never have another interaction with another human being that's like first of all first of all that seems a little bit impractical <laughs> um like I, I don't it's it's really it's a little impractical impractical from from the perspective of you know living your daily life but um but it also leads to just such a miserable life and it's such a cruel and unusual punishment for for people uh, for for a person and it's just it's really it's really such a great concept and it's such a such a great way to kind of dovetail everything together at this end and then we end the episode with um with the time uh the the time adjustment thing on the cookie that uh Rafe Spall's character's like copy is in where they they do the time adjustment to 1000 years per minute and it's like like that is so messed up because he will feel every day of that because he's a digital copy that doesn't eat or sleep or die. He'll just live it. And it's like, and then to have it end, to have the actual ending be him smashing the radio and then the sound, the music just, just amplifying each time is just like, that is so, so harsh. And I love it. It's so twisted and so great. I, I love this episode. And the way, as I said, the way everything kind of comes together is really remarkable storytelling. I think that it was, it's, it's really amazing the way that, um, everything came together and 
was handled in this episode and I really, really loved it. Um, and I'm, I'm trying to think if there's anything else. I, I'm think I'm done with my <laughs> review. Um, this is my third anthology episode I'm recording in a row. So if I seem a little hoarse or out there, that's why, but, um, but yeah, thank you for listening. And I, I think I would rank this pretty high. Um, I mean, this might be, this might be number three on my list of favorite Black Mirror episodes. Um, first one being 15 million merits and then second one being the entire history of you. Although those could maybe be interchangeable. I'm not sure, but I would say that this is, um, about even if not a little bit better than be right back for me, for my personal rankings. But you know, that's all subject to change. <laughs> so yeah, having said all that, having spouted out my review, um, that's, that does it for this week's episode or this week's bonus episode. Um, on the main side of anthology, I'm going to be having my 27th episode come out soon. Um, it's going to be reviewing episode 32 of the twilight zones first season titled a passage for trumpet. You can check that out at anthologypod.com. And if it's, and if you're listening to this after that episode goes live, you can check it out at anthologypod.com slash zero two seven. And of course this kind of does it for my bonus review series of Black Mirror for Series 1 and 2. Season 3 is out now, and now that I've recorded this, I can finally watch those episodes, and I'm so freaking excited. Um, and of course, I will be doing bonus reviews of each episode. So, thank you guys for listening, and uh, once again, rate and review on iTunes. It helps out a lot, and I'll see you guys next time. Thank you for listening to Anthology, presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. You can find more episodes at AnthologyPod.com, and you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast app. If you'd like to help support the podcast, please take a few minutes to leave a rating and a review on iTunes. The more reviews I get, the higher the show will be ranked in iTunes search results, making it easier for people to discover it and grow the podcast. Of course, you can always email me your thoughts and feelings about the show to matt at obsessiveviewer.com. You can also tweet me at obsessiveviewer, like the Facebook page at facebook.com slash anthologypod, or you can call and leave me a voicemail at 317-762-6099 for a chance to have it played on the show. If you like what you've heard here, I urge you to check out The Obsessive Viewer, a weekly movie and TV podcast I host with my friends Mike and Tiny. Also check out the Obsessive Viewer blog at ObsessiveViewer.com where I write movie reviews, TV reviews, and the occasional editorial about the business of entertainment. If you want even more obsessive content in your life, subscribe to the Obsessive Viewer subreddit at r slash obsessive viewer and check out ObsessiveBookNerd.com, our sister site for book reviews, author spotlights, and a general celebration of reading. Finally, if you're philosophically curious check out my friend Tiny's side project podcast, The Secular Perspective, which explores the concepts of faith, religion, and existence from the perspective of secular hosts. You can find that at thesecularperspective.com. Once again, thank you very much for listening, and I'll see you next time.
It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Horton's new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply.